Well, judging by the music I hear in my headphones, it must be time to start the program. My name is Sean Boonstra. This is Disclosure, faith-based talk radio from the good people at The Voice of Prophecy. And in my humble opinion, you couldn't ask for a better place to land on your radio dial right now. Of course, that's just my opinion. You may form a different one by the time we're done today. You know, on average, I like to peruse a couple of books a week. I'm a reader. I like to buy at least two titles a week and at least thumb through them because I find reading is so much more satisfying than watching television or binging on Netflix. I I guess my brain just feels better when I read because, well, I don't know about you, but if I watch television for an hour or so, I kind of zone out. I get a dial tone in my brain. Now, if you're a millennial, let me explain what a dial tone is. Back in the old days, when you picked up the telephone, it had a sound that let you know that you were connected, but you had not yet achieved connection with an individual. Dial tone. I don't know if you can find that online, but go ahead. If you're under the age of 30, go ahead and Google dial tone and see if you can figure out what that is. That's what I get when I watch TV for an hour. I get disoriented. I find it hard to concentrate. It's kind of like waking up from a mid-afternoon nap. I don't know where I am. Everything's too bright and loud. But I find that reading does the opposite. It wakes my brain up and it keeps it racing with brand new ideas, which is the reason I no longer read at bedtime, because I won't sleep for the night. You know, every so often I find a book that makes my top 10 list for the year, a book that charges my intellectual batteries, it stimulates how I think. And this past year, one book in particular made the top of my list, and that's Protestants by Alec Reary. Uh, the whole title, I've got the book here in my hands, Alec Reary, Protestants, The Faith That Made the Modern World. And I believe that when it was published in the UK, it was um, the radicals that uh, made the modern world or, or something to that effect. This book is easily one of the best histories of the Protestant Reformation and the impact Protestants have had on the Western world that I have read bar none. Now that's saying quite a bit because I'm a fussy reader and I hate fluff. But this is not a book of fluff. This has got substance to it. This is a book that really digs into the heart of Protestantism and lays that subject open in a way that makes this, well, hugely divergent family of Christians we know as Protestants accessible. It really broadens your understanding. It sheds light on not just the history of Protestantism, but it, it digs into the mindset of Protestants as well, somehow pulling together this really broad spectrum of Christian believers and finding commonality. So when I was done reading this book, I wondered, who is this guy? And it turns out Alec Reary graduated from Cambridge with a double first in history, got his doctorate from Oxford in theology. Uh, he's now professor of the history of Christianity at Durham. And on top of that, uh, he's a licensed minister at his local church. So I thought, wouldn't it be great if this author who got my attention would come on the show and talk to us? And I had no idea if we'd be able to track him down, but lo and behold, he is on the telephone today from the UK. Mr. Reary, what a privilege, or Dr. Reary, I suppose, what a privilege to have you on the program today. It's a great pleasure to be with you, Sean. Hey, listen, this book, um, what prompted the title difference, if I could ask right out of the gate? In America, it's the faith that made the modern world. Wasn't it called the radicals that made the modern world in the UK? It was. Yeah, yeah, we had some fun with that. Um, we're dealing with different cultures on the two sides of the Atlantic. We're a much more secular world over here. Um, our 
our publishers over here looked at it and they said, uh, if we put faith in it, that means we've got to market it as a religious book. And that means a kind of little corner at the back of the store. Whereas if we put <laughs> radicals in it, then we can market it as a history book. And that's a, to, to, to a much wider audience. Whoa. It's just interesting to see the way these things get get packaged for a for, a, for 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 different markets i mean for me i've i've taught in um i've taught history and i've taught um in theology and religion departments across different universities i i don't want to choose between those two identities those are the two things i do i i don't mind which of the two labels you put on me <laughs> i've got to confess i mean I, I guess radicals would have made me pick up the book too i um i wasn't born in america i think faith would sell big in america i i don't know what the number is precisely but i think still 90 some percent of americans profess belief in god and it's decidedly less secular than much of the rest of the western world um radicals would have made me pick it up um I have to confess, I really enjoyed your book. I want to thank you for the effort you put into it. This is the most fun—I don't like to compare authors, but this is the most fun I've had reading a book on Protestant history since Roland Bainton. Uh, I had to read his books as an undergraduate at the University of Victoria. Um, And I want to ask you, what compelled you to do this? What made this your object of uh, fascination? Why? Why this book? Well, I started out as a graduate student, what, um, 25 years ago, working on the, the history of the Reformation, which of all the periods of Christian history I was, I was drawn to, because I think this is one of the times when you can really see that it's, it's people's beliefs, their ideas, their, their experience of an encounter with God is what's actually driving what they do. Um, sometimes driving it in terrible ways, you know, it's, it's you know, creating the, the era of the religious wars and so forth. But if there's ever a moment when you 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 can't avoid the fact that people's faith is of decisive importance for shaping the world, it's the Reformation, yeah. which which drew me to that. And at the same time as I was doing this, but my first bits of graduate work, this was in the in the early nineties. At the same time, I was reading about and following pretty closely the democratic transition that was happening in South Africa, um, you know, end of apartheid, was yes. that, that sort of moment. And I was getting drawn into the role that the different Protestant churches were playing in that story on, on, on all sides. And I just kept being struck by the parallels the extent to which this story that was playing itself out in front of me in real time was just an echo of, or you know, with, with the same themes were coming out as I was seeing in my textbooks from the 16th century. Wow. And I thought, this is a story that deserves to be looked at with some continuity. And so I, I, I then spent, you know, the next 15 years doing other stuff, but always with this kind of idea bubbling away. And then I began to think, whoa, we've got this big anniversary coming up. 2017 was, um, as you know, I'm sure everybody has this you know, graven on their, their, their minds, um, was, was the 500th anniversary of the, the beginning of the Reformation of Martin Luther's first protest. I thought that seems like a good moment to try and see if rather than telling bits of this story the way historians usually do, it would be kind of fun to stand back and see if we can, if I can do the whole thing. 
um, and draw some of those common threads together and explain why I think what's happened in South Africa and in various other parts of the modern world and in many places between now and then and what was happening back in those first days of the Reformation is actually a single story. You know, I I always wondered. I, I, I can see now in retrospect as you explain it how South Africa might have driven this. I, I was wondering if you should come on the program. I was wondering what would we talk about because there's so much in the book to dig into. And South Africa was one of those for me. I'm from a Dutch Calvinist family. And... Um, and of course, I probably have distant relatives down in South Africa, even though we've been separated by several centuries. Um, and as I read your chapters there, some of them made me hang my head in shame. I thought, well, maybe we won't talk about that because this this is my tribe down there. I think it's a powerful um, section of the book. It's fascinating to me uh, how that is playing out and some of the same debates and concepts are driving that, as you've mentioned. Um, I also wondered if we would talk about well, how Lutherans struggled with the rise of Calvin and his dominance in their own era back in the 16th century. Then you've got these chapters on the uh, role of Protestantism in the formation of the American Republic, uh, the role of Protestantism in the civil rights movement here in America. There are so many things that I wanted to talk to you about, but we only have one hour to talk. And I think the place I want to land today, um, invoking Godwin's law, I know that's not quite Godwin's law, but I want to talk about the role of Protestants in Third Reich Germany because, well, my father was born in a Nazi-occupied village in the Netherlands. Some of my uh, families were family members were in the camps. Some were resistance fighters. Uh, we even had Germans in my family, and one that we know of, one Nazi sympathizer who disappeared in 1945. We never heard from him again. Uh, that chapter really got my attention, and so I thought we'd look at that. Um, and I, maybe let's kick off with this question. When I talk to people today about the culpability of state atheism in the role of communists in the 20th century, 100 million dead, I've had it thrown back at me that, well, Hitler did the same thing in the name of Christianity. You can't blame atheism. And so maybe let's start there. I know we only have three minutes to our first break, but uh, was Hitler building his regime on Protestant thought on Christianity? Uh, well, I mean, no, Nazism wasn't a, a Christian movement in, in most senses of the word, but it's not atheistic either. Um, I mean, as far as the Nazis are concerned, atheism meant communism, and they, 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 they firmly rejected that. Um, some of the Nazis are into kind of paganism, trying to reinvent old Nordic stuff, but Hitler and many of the other senior Nazis thought this this was pretty ridiculous, too. Um, I mean, really, insofar as, as Nazism had a god, um, it was the nation, the, the you know the German people. That's that's kind of what they what they worship, and in particular themselves as an embodiment of it. Um, so that, that that kind of racial theory is really what what drives it. But Christianity is tied up in that. The Nazi Party's very first manifesto from 1920 um, commits them to supporting what they call positive Christianity. Now, that's not Christianity as you or I or anybody alive today might recognize it. Sure. But it's, it's Christianity in the sense of a, of a kind of, of 
in a, in a sort of blood and soil sense, a kind of nationalist ethnic identity. I mean, you're beginning to see just hints of that in some of the ways that some um, nationalists in East and Central Europe at the moment are starting to talk about Christian identity and defending the Christian identity of their of, of their nations in a way that doesn't seem to have an awful lot of Christianity in it, um, but is much more about kind of define what defines us as a as a tribe as a people. Sure. So you you, uh, you mean but, as as in some of the things that are going on in Poland, the Czech Republic, and so on yeah. with regard to immigration? Yeah, yeah. I think that I've, I'm I'm not saying that that's that's Nazism. No, no, of I'm course. But I'm saying that 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 kind of appeal to to Christianity as as a form of identity politics, um, rather than as anything with any kind of, um, of of doctrinal or spiritual content, is I, I think it's it's a similar move to the one that the that the Nazis were were trying to make right at the beginning. It has to be said they make that that claim to positive Christian identity right at the start of the Nazi Party's um, creation. Not an awful lot comes of it. Um, you know, Hitler was was himself born a Catholic, never formally renounced his his Catholic right. identity, but especially by the end of his life. Alec, I, I hear them playing the music. We're going to have to take a we're going to have to take a quick break. We'll be right back. My guest today on Disclosure is Alec Reary, author of Protestants: The Faith That Made the World, one of the best books I've ever written on Protestant history and its influence in our world today. We'll be right back after this break. As you may know, the Voice of Prophecy is supported by people just like you. We provide Christ-centered programs and Bible studies free of charge so that no one is left out. If you've been blessed by these programs and would like to pay it forward, we invite you to visit vop.com give to make your tax-deductible donation. We're equipping the world for Christ to come, and your support will make a direct impact on so many lives. That's vop.com give. Most of us have lost a loved one to death, and the question we wrestle with in our mind is what exactly happens when we die? Do we go to heaven or do we go to hell, as some people believe? Find the Bible's answer to this question in our free Discover Bible Guides. You can get them at VOP.com, click on the tab that says Study, or just call us at 888-456-7933. That's 888-456-7933. We are back from the break, and as a Christian host, there is a moment that I must repent. Apparently, as we went into the break, I told you that I had written the book Protestants. That is not correct. All I have done is read the book Protestants. Alec Reary is the author. He's my guest today, and my sincerest apologies to you, Alec. I'm not trying to to um, I'm not trying to commandeer your royalties or anything like that. I just uh, very happy for somebody else to take the blame. <laughs> oh, I think I think you'd like to take the blame for this book. I think it is magnificent, and um, and and that's saying you know I I read an awful lot of history. 
Uh, I wasn't always a Christian, but bef- you know, before I became a Christian, I hated history. What's the point? They're all dead. But after becoming a Christian, I found it fascinating history because, um, well, I, for any number of reasons, you, you can't be a Christian and not get this sense that it's a historical religion, and you can't be a Christian and not sort of uh, understand our role in I mean it's it, it's easily ground zero the most um, influential movement in the history of the world in my humble opinion Christianity and your book on Protestantism is phenomenal so we were talking just before the break about um, the role of Christianity in the rise of the Third Reich and the Nazi movement and, uh, and this idea that, you know, Nazis—I've heard people say Hitler was a Christian, he did it in the name of Christianity, which certainly was not true. And you'd pointed out before the break that they weren't atheistic either, that it was kind of a positive Christianity. They were adopting it kind of as a nationalist philosophy, if I understood you correctly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really a kind of piece of, of, of window dressing for the core of it, which is, is, is worship of the, of the German nation, of their own imagined racial purity. Right, and I heard you say that the the uh, the revival of Nordic paganism was a bit silly. I've heard that theory as well many many times that Hitler was trying to revive the ancient Germanic gods and sort of it, worship Odin and Thor. And yeah, there are some people in, involved in the in, in in the Nazi movement who are into that kind of thing. Um, Hitler himself and and many of the other senior Nazis seem to have regarded it as as uh, you know as as silly um but as as harmless as a kind of a, a different way of expressing the the values of the nation i get what i guess what they liked about it is that it got them away from some of the bits of christian morality christian ethics that were really just a bad fit sure. to nazism um, you know, all this inconvenient stuff about, you know, mercy and loving <laughs> your neighbor and, and, and so on that, that really just didn't fit with what they were trying to do. You could get out of that in, into, into paganism a bit more easily. Well, I definitely hear a huge streak of Nietzsche's will to power sort of uh, philosophy in Nazi philosophy, and that doesn't fit well with the Jesus of the Gospels. It doesn't. Um, I mean, I, I personally, I think we've sometimes been a bit unfair to Nietzsche. He's, he gets misrepresented after his death, but, but <laughs> certainly by the time they've by the time they've laid hold of him, he's been turned into this um, this this kind of icon of wanting to turn Christian morality on its head. Right. Which, which is what they did. Sure, sure. Listen, putting Nietzsche to one side, although. I, I'm one of the few Christian ministers out there that enjoys reading Nietzsche. I probably shouldn't even admit that on the air, but I, I do, because I think you're right. People have done things with him that aren't necessarily true. He's hardly a paragon of Christian virtue, but um, he's not quite the monster that we've made him out to be either, I don't think. And uh, Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. When he says that, that God is dead and we've killed him, that's, that's not—he's not committing a murder. He's, he's, he's more, almost more accusing— himself or you know his his society for this. Well, I hear in the, in the madman we're going a little bit off topic, but when I read the madman, I think man, he's ad, he, he's feeling despair over the consequences of a godless world and um, I can almost hear his cry, I hope this isn't true. Almost, almost. Um, let's talk about another yeah. character though for a moment because I don't think there's any figure that looms larger in the Protestant world than Martin Luther. And uh, you published this book just in time for 
the uh, 500th anniversary of nailing the theses to the church door in Wittenberg. I, like many others, made my pilgrimage to Wittenberg that year to go and stand in front of the church door and, and, and so on. I've heard it said, though, that you know, Luther struggled with some anti-Semitic positions and that perhaps the Nazis built on his anti-Semitism. In your opinion, is it fair to brand Luther that way? Uh, yeah, I think in the end it, it is, you know. I mean, not, not completely. Uh, Luther changed his mind on this early. In it. I mean, he, wrote, he writes two books about um, Jews and Judaism during his life out of the nearly 600 that he wrote. Right. Um, the first one is, um, is called That Jesus Christ Was Born a Jew um, and is essentially saying, look, if we could properly reform Catholicism, then um, we'd get rid of all these corruptions within Christianity and all the Jews would want to come and convert. Christianity. So, so he's, it, he's was a, say, Look, we should. it was a work of proselytization then. He was attempting to win Jews to Christianity? Exactly. Um, but he's he, at that point, he's trying to say, look, you know, if, the only reason that the Jews haven't converted is because we are so corrupt and that we've treated them with such harshness and hostility. So if we were to start being reasonable and behave sensibly, then obviously they would see the truth and all become Christians and everything would be fine. Um, then 20 years later, when um, that hasn't happened, um, you know, a Lutheran Reformation has been established and there hasn't been no great rush of, of <laughs> Jews to convert right. to, to Lutheranism or to any form of Christianity, he goes right to the other extreme. Um, and his, the book he writes in the last few years of his life called On the Jews and Their Lies, um, is a, a really a sort of gibber of, of hatred I against... I can't even Judaism imagine something like... Represents. I can't even imagine a title like that coming off the presses today. Um. No, I, I, um, I'd, I'd like to think that that would be, that would be a, a difficult book to sell. Um, although, I mean, you don't have to look very far out onto the Internet and you can find this, you know, exactly this kind of sentiment out there. Right. Um, and... I mean, he was—he wasn't actually arguing for for Jews to be killed, but to be deprived of property and legal rights, to be driven out of their homes and so forth. So, you know, it, it comes pretty close. Um, and that's a book which the Nazis would go on to to rediscover and republish. They made a great deal out of Luther as this great German hero, and it's that kind of thing that makes it easy for them to present themselves as as his heirs. I mean, I, I, I don't want to say that Nazi anti-Semitism is just derived from Luther. Um, sure. There's a lot of blame to spread around for this one. Um, and it's a, a mixture of classic Christian anti-Judaism, which um, comes from a, from a lot of of, of sources and has, had, had been building in different forms for centuries, and a new set of secular racial forms of, of, of anti-Semitism. The Nazis managed to brew these different things up together in a, a, a uniquely toxic mix. Well, that must have put the German Protestants in quite a bit of a quandary to see 
the Nazi movement adopt Luther or use Luther or, or did it? I mean, you state in the book that Protestantism's anti-Semitic view shifted as we moved into the 18th and 19th centuries, and you said took on two contradictory faces. You had the conservative Protestants and the liberal Protestants who uh, looked at this issue a little bit differently, uh, you know, Jews and Christianity. Um, could you unpack that for me a little bit? What are these two contradictory faces? Yeah, so I mean, it's it's the the, the contradiction is you know they're coming from you know opposite ends of the of the theological spectrum, liberals and conservatives. Um, but the one thing that they can agree on is that both of these views lead them towards hostility and suspicion towards towards Jews. Um, that if you're a a conservative Protestant, then you are hostile to the Jews for the reasons that conservative Christians had been for centuries. You know, that, that you, you may well still hold on to the idea that the Jews are somehow collectively and permanently responsible for Christ's death, um, which is a, is a weird notion, but it's, it's, it's there, it's really persistent. Um, and that the, the persistence of Judaism, the fact that, that still, after all these centuries, Jews haven't accepted the truth of Christianity. Um, a lot of Christians have found just that offensive. Um, but then you, you have this movement in the 18th, 19th century towards greater liberalization and, and secularization, the legal status of Jews in a lot of places improves. You've got movement towards toleration, towards democracy. And a, a lot of Jews are at the forefront of those those movements. Um, and so you, your conservatives may also start to view Jews as dangerously subversive. It's not, not forgotten that a lot of the early communist and revolutionary agitators are Jewish. Um, and certainly as far as the Nazis are concerned, communism is, is basically a Jewish plot. Um, it's fast, that fascinates it, me because, you know, no communist would say that it, because they were also anti-Semitic. Um, you know, by the time that you get partway into the Bolshevik Revolution, aren't they also driving the Jews out of, um, out of Russia? Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, this is, this is one of the, the regular, um, well, irony doesn't seem a strong enough word, um, of, 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 of Jewish history, that they, the Jews end up being blamed simultaneously by both sides. Mm. Um, you know, it, it is the one thing that everybody can agree on, that, 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 that they want to blame the Jews. Um, <laughs> yeah, I shouldn't even laugh at that. I know, I've, got, I've got a couple of Jewish names if I go back a couple of, of generations in, in our family tree, so I, I shouldn't even laugh at that, but it, I think you're right. And here in America, I've run across the odd, you know, sort of religious extremist who literally counts the Jewish names in television credits at the end of a program and gets angry about it. Yeah, no, I mean, you will, you will find, um, you know, on the far right and on the far left, it's, you know, it, it's, 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 it's the great kind of uniting passion. Um, so you've, you know, you've, you've got that kind of thing. But then on the, on the liberal side, as you begin to get new forms of, of, of liberal Protestantism emerging in the sort of late 19th, early 20th centuries, they're starting to question the... The, the basics of the inherited structures of, of Christianity and think about what could be reformed. And a lot of the Jewish inheritance 
starts to look like the kind of thing that they want to leave behind. They start trying to to reinterpret it, saying that we should go for a purely New Testament Christianity. The Old Testament starts to look like it represents sort of barbarism, this semi-pagan structure, something that they that they want to to outgrow, um, and and you know maybe even questioning that sort of inherited set of of um, you know. As, as they see it, a Jewish moral structure, which is holding Christianity back from from what it could be. Now, we're up against another break, I'm afraid, so I'm going to interrupt you right there, and uh, we'll just take a, a couple of moments for um, some advertising spots. My guest today is Dr. Riri, and in a couple of moments, we'll be right back. Disclosure is just one of the programs brought to you by the Voice of Prophecy, like the audio adventure program, Discovery Mountain. Discovery Mountain is a weekly Bible-based program for kids of all ages and backgrounds. Your family will enjoy faith-building stories with Jake Donovan, (laughs) Mr. Simon, and others in this small mountain town. Each summer, campers visit Discovery Mountain, where they sing songs, learn about God, and reenact a Bible story with the help of drama teachers, Miss Wendy and Miss Tamara. With 24 full episodes every year and programming every week, your family will have something uplifting to listen to every week. Listen to episodes on demand and watch video features from director Doug at discoverymountain.com or on your favorite podcast platform. That's discoverymountain.com. I have eagerly been awaiting our return from the break. My name is Sean Boonstra. You're listening to Disclosure, brought to you from the good people at The Voice of Prophecy, faith-based talk radio. My guest today on the program is Dr. Alec Reary, who wrote Protestants, The Faith That Made the Modern World. And while there's an awful lot to talk about in this book, we've been looking at the 20th century and the rise of the Third Reich in particular and Christians' reaction to it. Dr. Reary, uh, let me ask this. You know, as, as German Protestants are watching Hitler rise to power, as they're watching the Nazis take power, how did they react? I mean, what's going on in their hearts and minds? How do they view it from their particular um, theological point of view? Well, they're very split, obviously. I mean, Protestants are, you know, the most quarrelsome people in the world. You put two <laughs> yes. of them in a room, you get three opinions. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I think the dominant feeling is of, of relief. They have been through the, the years of defeat after the First World War, and then the sort of pell-mell secularization of this, this very kind of um, you know, licentious, open society as they see it, when all kinds of traditional morality has been challenged and communism has been growing in Germany in the 1920s. And now we've got something that looks like stability and order comes back. Protestants are the, the, the core of the electoral coalition that, that puts the Nazis in power. Um, Hitler wins roughly twice as many votes from uh, twice as high a proportion of the Protestant vote as he does of the Catholic vote in Germany. Now, I suppose before um, you know, we're too rough on, on them, 
it, hindsight's twenty twenty, and they had no idea where it might lead at that point. So before we condemn them, it's probably uh, well to to look at um, at their perspective prior to the war, prior to the death camps, prior to Nazism running to its logical end. Yeah, I, I think this is this is absolutely right, and I'm not saying that any of us in their position would necessarily have realized any different. Um, there are some people, a handful of people, who've got the clarity of vision at the time to see what they're up against. But for most of them, like I say, I think the the, the dominant mood at the beginning is is relief that we're going to go back to a, a movement that talks about positive Christianity, that's going to restore traditional German values and pride. But then pretty quickly they start to realize, once the Nazis take power in 1933, that we are up against something a little bit different. And within that first year, there's a, an open split in the, in the Protestant church in Germany. It's, it's, you know, there's a single um, established national church which contains virtually all the Protestants in the country. There's you know, a, a, a few in minority groups. Um, and, and this church splits between a, an openly pro-Nazi wing who, become, who, who call themselves the German Christians, hmm. who talk about renouncing the, the Old Testament and the sort of vestiges of Jewish, as they see it, of Jewish identity entirely, and who aspire to produce um, a kind of de-Judaized Christianity. Um, and... Uh, Another movement which is is more traditionally Christian in its focus and, 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 and isn't happy with that direction. Um, and that, that German Christian movement ends up, because it's got active support from the regime, of course, um, ends up dominating the power structures of the, of the national church. They take over um, 24 of the 27 sort of regional churches as a federal structure. Um, and managed to to push through a a, a series of of measures, which you know, put them and their allies in in charge. They eventually set up this this extraordinary entity, the the the, the Dejudaization Institute, um, based in the Wartburg Castle, where where Martin Luther had translated the New Testament into oh, German, really wanting to claim his his legacy. Um, and they produce, um, it, it comes out in the first couple of years of the, of the war in 1941, 1942, um, this, this extraordinary pair of documents. They produce a, a, a de-Judaized Bible, um, which, I mean, obviously doesn't have very much in it. Once you de-Judaize the Bible, pretty much everything is gone. Um, and it's cut down to... Uh, uh, they they produce a single gospel kind of clutched together from the the bits that they can that they can get out of the um of of, of the synoptic gospels few bits of john um uh they they weave together some stuff from the acts of the apostles and paul's letters into a single narrative it, that's pretty much it it reminds me of um there was a slave bible put out in 1808 in america that uh 
there wasn't much left of it either, but they removed anything that would offer any hope of liberty so that the slaves could also learn Bible stories. But, for example, the Exodus was left out of it because that might give them, you know, aspirations of liberty and that kind of thing. So to Judeo's the Bible— I think Thomas Jefferson did the same thing, too, but for different reasons. He rewrote the Gospels based on what he thought was authentic. Yeah, that, well, that it's, that it's been a, um, an appealing idea to a lot of Christians or quasi-Christians in a lot of periods to try and, and rewrite this thing to get rid of the awkward bits. Um, I think the Nazi attempt is, is one of the most extreme of, of these various Are there copies Um, of that Bible still out there? I've just got to know. You know, I've got a rather eclectic collection of reauthored Bibles in my library. Not that I'd love to have Nazi literature in my, but that would be a fascinating thing to thumb through. uh, There, there are a handful. I mean, they 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 printed hundreds of thousands of copies. Um, Most of them have have been destroyed for for obvious reasons. Right. Since the war, Germans have been kind of sensitive about Nazi literature. Yeah, of um, course. So, you know, there 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 are there are libraries that still hold copies. I'm not sure that you can buy one kind of on the open market as it were. No, so I'd have to go to a collection somewhere to see it, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's 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 around. So you've got um, this it's pretty thin, it's pretty slim. You've got this one movement then that's trying to co-opt Christianity, I suppose, so that I, I imagine, in my mind, so that Christians come along for the ride. They, they, they have a way to reconcile what's going on with the nationalistic movement of the Nazi party and their own Christian belief and sort of claiming Martin Luther as one of their heroes. But you also have another element in Christianity that must be—you you mentioned it, that we're not feeling good about this. That's right. For, for a, a lot of Christians in Germany, there are bits of what the Nazis are doing that they're starting to feel increasingly uneasy about, including people who are very much kind of politically conservative German nationalists. Um, you know, somebody like like Martin Niemöller, um, who right. had been a U-boat commander, um, who had voted for the Nazis, was strongly associ- associated with these sorts of movements. By the end of 1933, um, has openly denounced some of what the Nazis are doing. And the, the flashpoint for them becomes the question of what happens to people who are of Jewish ancestry, but who are also baptized as Christians. Well, it's funny you bring They're that up, because I jotted that down as a question I wanted to ask you. What do you do with somebody who's got a Jewish last name, but is a member of a Protestant church? There's not a whole lot of these people in Germany, but it, it really becomes a, a, a point of conflict between the, the Christians who just want to try and stay out of politics and get on with doing their thing and let the government do its thing. They, you know, these, are, these are not by nature political activists. Um, but there are some things that they're not going to budge on, and one of those is their core theology, which says that a baptized Christian is a baptized Christian, end of story. Um, and they want to see Judaism as a religious identity. But, of course, for the Nazis, Judaism is a racial right. a, a status. And, you know, the, the, the Nazis will, will openly say that Judaism is a stain that can't be washed away by anything as, 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 as simple as a baptism. They will insist on treating um, Christians of Jewish descent as being of exactly the same status um, as, as, as anybody else of Jewish descent. That means that 
um, under the legislation the Nazis bring in in 33 that those people are banned from holding any kind of office from any any role in public life which as far as the Nazis are concerned also ought to mean being banned from holding office in the church they're banned from you know, from from being pastors or having any other kind of of public role and mm. so you get very early on in the in the Nazi period as I say in in late 1933 early 1934 this body which calls itself the Confessing Church yes. formed, which separates off from the from the main body of the National Church and says, no, we are, we are the kind of continuing true Christian Church, which is confessing the true faith. Um, they're not an anti-Nazi movement in the sense that they're not politically campaigning, most of them, what they really want is just to be to be left alone, to be allowed to administer their own affairs, to worship in the way that they see as as right. It's a defensive movement, not a kind of you know a, a, aggressively anti-Nazi movement. And many of them continue to be really anti-Semitic, but they theologically they 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 say no. This this government is crossing a line. It's interfering in the church's freedom to to be itself. Um, in a way that, that we can't tolerate. And so did they run afoul of the government? Did uh, the Confessing Church run into trouble with the Nazis simply for wanting to be left alone? In a way, it's, it, one of the most extraordinary things about this this movement is how little trouble they run into. I, like I say, it's not an actively and openly anti-Nazi movement, but still it's defying the state. And nothing else like this exists in Nazi Germany in, in terms of a movement which is is holding up that kind of position separate from the from the state. Its members are harassed. Um, some of its leaders are imprisoned. The legal space it's got to operate in is squeezed. Um, Martin Niemöller, who I mentioned, who becomes one of its most prominent leaders, right. um, is, is, is repeatedly imprisoned and then sent to a concentration camp where he's We've got to take a break. I hear the music again. I find this so fascinating, and I almost resent it when they come to the break time. I enjoy listening to this history. Uh, my guest today on the program is Dr. Alec Reary. The book is Protestants, the Faith that Made the Modern World. My name is Sean Boonstra. You're listening to Disclosure, brought to you by The Voice of Prophecy. Grab a pen and paper during this commercial break. There'll be some special offers from The Voice of Prophecy you'll want to take advantage of, and then I'll be right back. Thank you. 
Retirement planning can be a stressful process, but it doesn't have to be. The friendly people at The Voice of Prophecy can walk you through the entire process and explain all of your options based on your specific needs. Whether you'd like to set up a trust for income or make a gift that will benefit your loved ones and change lives through The Voice of Prophecy, we're here to help. To learn more, call 1-800-348-5993. Do you feel as if you have more questions than answers in your life? Are you searching for answers to some of life's biggest questions? The Discover Bible Guides can help you find the answers you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or call us at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. It is hard to believe, but we are already in the final segment of today's show. My name is Sean Boonstra. You're listening to Disclosure. My guest on the program today is Dr. Alec Reary. The book, Protestants, The Faith That Made the Modern World. And uh, this is a book that is terribly rich. There was so much that I wanted to talk about, Dr. Reary. Um, and we've only got the one hour together, and I decided you know, to hone in on the rise of the Third Reich. I think that's something that everybody, at least at some point in their lives, have given some thought to. And um, and I wanted to ask you about Martin Luther and his doctrine of the two kingdoms and how that may have played a role in the thinking of Protestants as they headed into the era of the Third Reich. Sure. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Luther comes up with this this extraordinarily rich, powerful idea, his doctrine of the two kingdoms in the in the early 1520s. Um, which is is about how church and state, as we would say nowadays, should relate to each other. Um, and basically, he says, you know, these are these are two kingdoms: the kingdom of this world, that's the state, the kingdom of Christ, um, and they're both legitimate. They've both got a job to do. The kingdom of of this world is, you know, he he, he thinks is, is ordained by God, um, but they should be separate from one another because they're, they're, they're distinct callings. Um, and the kingdom of Christ is, is so much higher, so much greater in his thought that it really shouldn't concern itself with by sort of interfering with um, you know, the, the, the muckiness of everyday politics. Um, so he, he, he really wants quite a radical separation between the two. And you can see how that idea has been so powerful right. throughout it's a history. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God exactly. the things that are God's. Um, and, I mean, you, you can see an absolutely straight line from, from that to, to the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Absolutely, uh, And yeah. the notions of, of separation of church and state that we see in different forms I mean, all over the world. And it's easy to state, but it's not so easy to put into practice, because it's how, how does one separate one's faith from, from one's civic role? And, and so yeah. I've got to imagine that couldn't have been easy for the German Christians. It's, it's not. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, like you say, easy to, to say separation, but there's a lot of different ways of, of doing it. And there's a lot of, of kind of border territory where it's not quite clear exactly which of these two kingdoms ought to have responsibility. 
Um, and the way that this had developed in, in Germany in particular during the, during the 19th, 20th centuries was of the church really kind of withdrawing from any sort of, of, of role in public affairs in the political realm of, of any kind. Um, and the, 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 the state insisting that its moral authority in that sphere is, is kind of unchallengeable. And this means that when the, the Nazi party seizes power uh, in, in Germany in the early 30s um, and is saying, right, we are the, the legitimate rulers of, of Germany. We are, we are God's ordained power um, you know, in, in order to, to wield the sword, right. as, the, um, as so the theologians would have said, you know, pa- quoting Pauline Paul argument. in Romans 13. Right. Um, and therefore, you know, Paul says, the powers that be are ordained by God. The Nazis say, yeah, that means us. Um, and so you... That, it you kind know, of paints you into a corner, doesn't it? <laughs> it, it really does. Um, and for a lot of those Christians who are finding themselves, you know, wanting to, to oppose what the, what the Nazis are doing, this is a, a, a real dilemma. Um, one, of the, one of the early... Um, Christian opponents of the Nazis, maybe the most um, consistent and powerful German Christian to oppose the, the Nazis is, is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right? Um, who, who in the end is is um, is killed by them in April 1945. Um, and the way he gets around it is is kind of a cheat in a way. He he decides early on that the the Nazi government isn't actually a government at all. It's a criminal conspiracy which has has taken over the state, um, and so he doesn't need to worry about those sorts of church-state issues. And now, I mean, criminal conspiracy is a pretty good way of describing the, the, the Nazi sure. party, so it works. But as a as a, a way of solving the bigger problem of what do you do about governments that start behaving in radically unchristian ways. Um, it's it's a pretty messy solution, and the fact that he's got to go for that kind of you know, really extreme way of dealing with it, I think, shows how how serious a problem this is, and that for a lot of other Germans, the this conscientious problem of okay, you know, I might think this, but how how can I dare oppose um, you know the legitimate ruler of my country uh, is is something that that genuinely troubles them right through the, the years of the um, of, of, before and during the Second World War. Well, of course, it's nothing new to Christianity. It was born under a non-Christian regime, and so I suppose this is something Christians have uh, dealt with for, at this point, 1,900 years. I mean, the Romans were anything but a Christian regime, and they had to figure out how do we relate to Caesar. Um, sure. Yeah. Everybody knows that when, when Paul says in Romans 13, the powers that be are ordained by God, that he's not talking about some, some nice Christian ruler. He's talking about the Emperor Nero. Right, right. Um, so, you know, they, th- there's, there's a, a, a record here of how you deal with, with hostile um, governments and nevertheless accept that God can be working through them. Um, and the, the realization that a lot of people in the confessing church come to only very slowly is that 
in this case, that is not adequate. Right. Um, when when you're dealing with a a government which is intent on crimes of a scale that nobody had ever really imagined before, um, it's not good enough just to say, well, clearly it's God's will. Well, that's Bonhoeffer. You describe another character in the book as a form- well. You call Karl Barth as the Nazis' most formidable theological opponent. That's what you call him in that chapter. Uh, in what way is he their most formidable theological opponent? Um, I, yeah, I mean, I would, I'd, I'd, I'd stand by that. He's he's a, a giant of of Protestant theology in the in the twentieth century. Um, I, maybe the most important thing about him is that he's not German; he's Swiss, um, and so he's not kind of caught up in the this nationalistic maelstrom in the same way that even somebody like like Bonhoeffer or, or Niemöller is. Um, for him, really, the the great moment of of, of realization is the First World War. Uh, you know, Switzerland is sitting on the sidelines um, as a neutral country while Europe tears itself apart in this kind of frenzy of bloodletting. Right. Um, and um, Karl Barth, who's a, a, a Swiss pastor, writes this extraordinary commentary on Paul's letter to the Romans, um, which is published in 1920, and, and effectively serves as a denunciation of the madness that Europe had fallen into around him saying that all this attempt to kind of liberalize and humanize Christianity um, and, and you know, emphasize the humanity of Jesus and all that, you know, which is all kind of very good in lots of ways, it had forgotten something. And what it had forgotten is the transcendence, the, the radical otherness of God. Right. Um, that just quite how separate um, God in any kind of orthodox Christian theology is from humanity, and that what we need to it, 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 is not so much to try and reimagine God or recreate him in our image, as some of the, the radical theologians of his day were doing, but to recognize that we are under judgment. Um, and partly because he comes from a slightly different theological tradition, he comes more from a Calvinist right. background than, 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 than from the, the Lutheran tradition that's dominant in Germany. Um, he's not quite so caught up by that that sense of of, of subjection to the to the secular state. Um, he's actually working in Germany. Um, he's, he's got a university post there. Um, at the time that the, that the Nazis come to power, he's driven out of of office and out of the country fairly quickly um, for the simple reason that he refuses to swear allegiance to Hitler. Um, refused to say to say Heil Hitler at the beginning of his lectures. Wow. Um, he regards that as a, a degree of compromise with the independence of the church. Um, that's that's simply unacceptable. And the the core um, statement that the Confessing Church produces in in 1934, the Barman Declaration, is is basically Karl Barth's work. Um, you know, he, he's he does recognize much earlier than most other people, just how radical a threat to the the core of Christianity, Nazism, represented. Um, and will go out of his way to assert the, that, that Jesus was a Jew, 
I mean, that point was controversial. Yes. Um, if you can believe it. Um, he will go out of his way to assert the rights, not just of Jewish Christians, you know, Christians of Jewish descent, um, but also the importance of, descend, of defending Christian uh, Jews who, 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 who remain Jews, um, and to, to insist that the Jews were and remain God's chosen people. Um, and these are obviously things that make right. him extremely unpopular with the Nazis. And right. he's, he's forced out of the country and spends the um, the war years in in Switzerland, where he does what he can by, by um, you know, f- from a distance to support the Confessing Church to call them to a a firmer opposition um, and to arrange. Um, safe passage for, for for Jews and other refugees to Switzerland, insofar as he can. Let me ask you. Let me ask you this, because I'm looking at the clock, and we've got just under two minutes left. It's hard to believe. Sure. Um, there's a statement when you get to the end of this chapter on you know German Christianity and the rise of the Third Reich. Um, there's a line there that stopped me cold. It said, there is only one reason why we do not share in their guilt. We were not there. Tell me, I mean, we've only got a minute and a half, but tell me what prompted you to write that? What was going on in your mind? I guess it's it's really easy to stand here now, you know, in, in our safe, peaceful countries and say, oh, we'd have done so much better if we'd have been there. It's obvious to us now, uh, just you know what a, a, an extraordinary and unique evil this was, um, but I think we are kidding ourselves if we think that we would necessarily have seen that at the time. There were people who were no more wicked than we are, right. who were living through this, and in the midst of all this confusion, fell for it or didn't quite see what was going on or just kind of kept their heads down and muddled through and tried not to see things um, or hoped that they hadn't seen things. And only afterwards did they fully realize what, had, what, 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 had, what they'd been doing. Um, I, I you know, suspect I, you're I, I don't know whether I, I don't know whether we're doing, whether we're ignoring similar crimes and horrors in our own age. Maybe we are, maybe we aren't. But I think we are kidding ourselves if if we want to stand here and say, oh, well, we're, we're better than they were. I think out of um, the entire book, that's the line that I highlighted in three different colors because I thought, you're right, you're right. It, it, to see darkness in other people is one thing. To find it in our own hearts, well, I suppose that's one of the points of Christianity. I can't believe that we're out of time, Dr. Reary. Thank you so much for joining me on the program today. Uh, the book... Protestants, the faith that made the modern world. You need to find this book. Go to Amazon.com and look it up. It's a must read. Until next time, I'm Sean Boonstra.